Father, thank you that we are who you say we are. That, Father, our identity, our significance, what makes us valuable does not stem from achievement, but, but your achievement, Father. Lord, I, I pray over these young adults that some of them may be in a heart posture of, of resting upon who they say they are, who, who their parents say they are, who people say they are. Lord, no. What's significant of, is, is what you say about us. Let those words rest over us tonight. And just, and just continue, we, we humbly ask to continue to do the work that you started tonight, Father. Pray this in your name. Amen. Well, hey, collective, it's a good night to be together. Don't you think so? Find your way to your seat and actually say what's up to somebody next to you. Give them a high five. Ask them what their plans are for this summer. Hopefully it's not more school. Oh, my goodness. Is school over? I'm so old, dude. I'm so out of the loop. Yes, school's over, officially. Amazing. I love that. What was that? In theory. Some of y'all are crazy. Some of you guys are still taking like 18 hours. You're going to spend your three months still in school. Probably all the engineers in the room. That's okay. Well, hey, it's good to be here tonight with you guys. I'm so grateful for this gathering. Anybody here at Wild West Night on Friday? Anybody here for that? Yeah, there we go. Yeehaw. A little bit. Of, can I get a yeehaw? <laughs> That's good. Hey, uh, that was a blast on Friday. I told the team this when we were praying together before. Uh, I, I never thought I'd thank God for country music. So here we are. Um, Nick is officially converted to Garth Brooks. So... Why are you clapping for that? We're not clapping for the transformation of the Holy Spirit. It's Garth Brooks. Wow. That, I mean, hey, he's a, he's a gem. He's a gift to this earth. But, uh, hey, if you got a Bible, if you got a Bible, turn to Galatians 2 with me. Turn to Galatians 2. Uh, we've been in this series titled We Are Family. And the premise of this series is just going section by section through the book of Galatians. You guys hear me say this almost every week when I intro the beginning of the talk. But really the, this book was placed on my heart because I sense that what we need more than ever as young adults is understanding of what it looks to be unified, what true community looks like, and what it looks like to understand truth and what is truth. The book of Galatians, in, in my humble opinion and from time spending outlining it and researching it, I've concluded that this book is about that, that the Apostle Paul is trying to get at what is unity and what is truth. And so if you're at Galatians 2, we're going to be starting in verse 11. But in preparation for tonight, I kind of came up with a hypothetical situation in my head that I was running through and studying and reading and that I'm fascinated by. But the hypothetical situation is this. Hypothetically speaking, this is a rhetorical question. Don't shout it out to me. But I'm very curious. If I were to ask each individual in this room if we had enough time to have a conversation, grab a cup of coffee, whatever that looks like. I'm very curious what the honest answer would be from each person. If I were to ask you directly, what is the most important thing about you? What, what makes your life significant? Where do you get value from? Where, where do you find your goals in life? And some of you would say like Jesus, right, and not really have much more to say besides that. And that's okay, right? But if I were to be really honest with you and you were to be really honest with me, we'd probably come up with some things along the lines of, well, the people I know, the, the friends close to me, my family, blood or, or unrelated, they're, they're, the, they're what's important in my life. Well, my career, what, what I slaved away at school for and I'm still in debt with, but it's my career, it, it's my everything. 
or, or the relationship I'm in or the people I know or the experiences I've had or the places I've seen. These would be maybe some responses you give. And we're used to this as people. When we meet one another, we ask them the question of what do you do? And we're really asking if we dive deeper, like, what makes you important? Like, why should I be talking with you? What, what's, on, what's going on? Like, what's up? Like, what, why are we having this conversation? And we're used to this as people were conditioned to do so. And I don't know if anybody grew up doing show and tell in school. Okay, I don't know if that's an Albuquerque thing. Okay, when I was in elementary school. Yeah, Andrew knows. Okay, a few people know. <laughs> but show and tell, if you're not aware, which I think most of us are not aware what show and tell is in elementary school. Okay, I don't know why we did this growing up as a kid. Maybe it's just like, I don't know. But once a year, we would be asked, hey, tomorrow is show and tell. Bring the one thing that is important to you, most important to you. It could be a family heirloom. It could be your Nintendo DS, which a lot of kids brought. And some had like the DS Lite. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like, oh, you bougie and rich. I got the Game Boy still, right? Some kids would bring like their pet gerbil. I'm not even kidding. This is real life. Some of you, like this is brand new information. And I love that we're experiencing this together. Um, some kids would bring a pet gerbil and literally have to sign off on it and have their mom bring it. It's like, oh my gosh, like how good do you have it? Your mom's bringing your gerbil to school. Like she got nothing better to do all day. Show and tell, this is what show and tell was. And you stand in front of the class, you introduce yourself and say, hi, my name is Nick, whatever. And they say, like, this is my Wii, and my Wii is important to me because I get to play Wii sports on it, okay? Like that's what you would do. And show and tell as a kid, it was pretty much like, this is what's most important to me. And what's fascinating about show and tell is somebody bring like, this is my dad's t-shirt. He passed away last year and it's just so special to me. Then you have kids like bringing their gerbil. It's like, I don't know if that's really significant and difference. But show and tell was interesting because of that factor, that it was saying, hey world, hey classroom, this is what's special about me. This is what's important to me. And as I said, I, I'm curious what our responses would be if we were to be honest with one another. What's important about us? For our text tonight, we're going to be reading about a character that if you've read the Bible at any point in your life, or the Gospels specifically, if you spent time around the church, in the church, sitting in the church, um, you're aware of this character. This is a man by the name of Peter. And Peter was one of the primary apostles, one of the 12 that walked and talked with Jesus and he's in this encounter with the Apostle Paul. And if you've been attending here, you know that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Galatian church. And he kind of name drops Peter in the middle of this letter. And something fascinating we need to know and understand about Peter getting into tonight is prior to meeting Jesus, we can conclude through reading about Peter's life and understanding a little bit of his history, a little bit of his background, the things he revered, the things he valued. Prior to knowing and walking and really being transformed by Jesus, if you were to ask the apostle Peter, what is the most important thing about you? He would most likely respond that he's Jewish. The most important thing about me is that I'm Jewish. That would most likely be the response by Peter. And it's actually speculated by different scholars that Peter initially joined Jesus because he believed that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. This is the reason why when Jesus is getting arrested in the garden, I don't know if this has never made sense to anybody else, but for a long time this never made sense to me. Jesus is in the garden getting arrested, and all of a sudden Peter just comes out of nowhere with his sword and is cutting off a dude's ear. Okay, and the dude's name, this is a fun little Bible fact, his name is Malchus, okay? Anybody's name Malchus in the room? Anybody? Nobody's name is Malchus. The Lord has anointed you, okay? The fact that your name is not Malchus, okay? So Peter cuts off this dude Malchus's ear, and then on the mountain of transfiguration, on the Mount of Olives, um, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John into kind of his inner circle, and Moses and Elijah appear physically, 
And Peter reveres Moses and Elijah so much. He says, Jesus, we need to build a temple for all three of you. And God literally sends a cloud over him, pretty much telling him to shut up. Peter loved and adored the idea of being Jewish. It was his culture. It was his ethnicity. It was his religion. That it's not a stretch for us as Bible students if we dive down deep to understand that being Jewish meant a lot to Peter. But, but prior to Jesus, this was his everything. This was his life. But then once Peter is transformed by the resurrection of Jesus and seen physically on the beach, Peter's value system begins to shift. And Peter faces an issue we all face, even as followers of Jesus to this day. The, the issue that Peter faces and that is outlined in this chapter is the issue of allowing the values of our old life to determine what is important in our new one, okay? The, 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 the crux of what Paul is writing about and what Peter is struggling with in this passage is the values of his old life becoming important in his new one. And so we're going to read about Peter, and it's a little important to get this background because we're, we're going to be jumping right into it, okay? And it's important to understand this because the Apostle Paul is going to get pretty saucy, as I said a few weeks ago, with Peter. And we need to understand what's really going on. And it's good to get a little background on Peter, a little bit of understanding as to why this is happening. And before beginning tonight, I want to title this converse, the beginning of this conversation, A Seat at the Table. A Seat at the Table. At the table. It may not make sense now. And this is going to be a two-part sermon. So this is a seat at the table. You can put, look, PT.1. Okay, Roman numeral because I went to homeschool, right? Okay. So we're going to be in verse 11, chapter 2 of Galatians. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, when Cephas, or Peter, which means pebble, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Wow, good morning, Paul. Okay. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And like we talked about a few weeks ago, I'll spare the circumcision jokes, okay. Um, anytime Paul mentions circumcision group or as a people, he's talking about the Jewish people, okay. The circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter and Cephas, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? See at the table. See at the table. Um, I'm going to begin tonight with a hot button issue, and I hate to go here, and I'm sorry if this feels divisive for you. If you want to have a conversation after service, we can chat. Um, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get a little heated in here, okay? And, and this is what I, what I want to present to you tonight. I want to present to you that um, milk isn't that bad, okay, guys? The truth is there is a current cancel culture on dairy, okay? I don't know what it is. I don't know what happened between the 24 years of my life, but back in the day, everybody was drinking milk. Nowadays, you go to get your coffee, and there's like five, six different milk options. You ask people, what is up with all these milk options? They say, oh, dairy makes my stomach hurt. Okay, nobody's even saying that they're lactose intolerant anymore. It says, oh, it kind of gives me the runs a little bit. I guess I can't drink it. I was like, but I see you eating pizza last night, so you can't have a latte? 
right? I, I don't know what it is. All right? I told you it's divisive, okay? And if you need counseling after service counseling, we'll have a table for all the milk people in the house, okay? I'm one of them, okay? I love milk. I will not give up on milk, okay? Don't clap for that, please. <laughs> milk for me is amazing. I, I love, after a meal, drinking a glass of milk. I love cheese pizza with a little bit of pepperoni, okay? When you go to pizza places and they take the cheese off the pizza, it's like, what is this? What am I eating? Like flatbread with marinara tomato sauce? No, that is a sin, okay? I am all cheese all day, okay? Um, I'm about yogurt. Like, yogurt, come on, you guys. Yogurt? Have you guys had Trader Joe's yogurt? Okay? Phenomenal, all right? But for some reason, we as a culture have canceled milk, okay? I am an advocate for milk. I, I, I'm, I'm going to die on this hill, okay? You cannot change my mind. Milk is God's gift to this green earth, okay? Specifically from cows, then that goat milk stuff, okay? I don't know. Oat milk, it, it, can, it can contest, okay? Oat milk's pretty fire. It's a, it's a little heavy, though, okay? Um, I might just fill my mace, uh, th- this hydro flask with milk later tonight. I don't know. We'll see. Just kidding. That's 64 ounces of milk. Could you imagine? That's the only thing about milk, though, okay? The only thing about milk is it has, like, the worst lifespan of all the refrigerator items, okay? Like, when your milk goes bad, you know it, all right? Like, it has, like, a span of, like, a couple weeks maybe. And if you're, like, drinking, like, chemical stuff, it's, like, two years. Like, don't put that in your body. Um, Milk is wild because it expires so quickly. Any dairy item, that's the only downside. Is any dairy item, it's going to be pretty quick until you can enjoy it. And it has to be, like, refrigerated all the time. If you put it in one thing, can't put another. Hence why my hydro flask isn't filled with milk, okay? Some of you are looking at me like, what is he on tonight? What is he talking about? Well, I say that because milk is not the only thing with a pretty intense expiration date. I would make the case that something on par with the intense expiration date of any dairy item would be conflict, okay? Oh, whoa, switch up. Yeah, that's right. I would say conflict has an expiration date. You can write that down as the first idea for tonight. Conflict has an expiration date. And I say that because when we allow conflict in our life to go unresolved, the moment we begin to taste on it after it's sat out for a while, it it tastes a little sour. You ever have somebody who is like, hey, I need to talk with you after service. You're like, okay. Go talk to him, like, okay, so I've been angry with you for, like, three months. It's like, oh, my gosh, what is your name again, right? So, like, you feel this, and you sense this tension in your life and in your relationships, and you've probably experienced this. Somebody approaches you, and it's like, my brother in Christ, that was six years ago, okay? I didn't friend zone you on purpose. It was an accident, right? Oh, too, too close, too close to home for some of us. But conflict has an expiration date. Now, now tonight isn't a, a crash course on how to deal with conflict. Actually, I would make the case that the apostle Paul is almost breaking his own rules that he'll talk about in Galatians chapter 6 about how to deal with conflict. But it's hard to ignore that in verse 11, it's in our faces of the apostle Paul having conflict with Peter. Okay, so if you thought church drama was just like a 2020 thing or whatever. Like, no, 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 first century, baby, okay? This is the same thing when people are like, I just want to go back to the early church. It's like, have you read Corinthians, okay? Have you read Galatians? Like, it wasn't all roses and rainbows, okay? The truth is, is the Apostle Paul had an issue with Peter that we read about. Peter was doing something that was contrary to the truth of the gospel as a leader in his community. The Apostle Paul, as another leader, a part of this community, had issue with this and brought it to Peter. And a little background that we need to understand is where they're at, and it's a place called Antioch. 
It's located today in southern Turkey. It's on the uh, coast of the Mediterranean, I believe. And it's north of Jerusalem, north of Israel. And the interesting thing about Antioch is it was a metropolis in its day. It, it was just huge because it was put right between two major roads for trading. And so it was a busy city, and historians conclude that it was a high Jewish community. It was a large Jewish community that we read in Acts chapter 13 that Paul actually goes to teach in the synagogue, and he gets kicked out by the Jewish leaders. And he will recount to Timothy later on in his timeline that he does not like Antioch because of the persecution he faced there. But what's fascinating about Antioch is Paul's in this synagogue in Acts chapter 13, and the people are telling him as he's getting kicked out, they're following him out saying, we, we keep saying this, this message you're sharing. Keep telling us about this Jesus. And it's not the sinners and the people who are far from God that are contrary to the gospel in that moment, but it's all the religious people. And it's fascinating that, that there's this dynamic in this city. There, there's a Gentile population, most likely in the minority. And by Gentile, I just mean non-Jewish people. So there's Jews and then, like, everybody else, okay? Um, and the Jews, it was a large community of them. Hence why Peter is there. If you remember a few weeks ago, Peter's assigned to Jewish ministry. And Paul is assigned to non-Jewish ministry, okay? So don't tell me there can't be no young adult ministry, all right? So in this moment... Here's something we can pull from when it comes to approaching conflict. Because you can't have unity in the church. You can't have unity in your relationships if you don't know how to have good conflict. Conflict is healthy. Arguing is okay. There, there's this idea circulating that I'm just this pacifist. I just, I just get along with everybody. It's like, okay, if you're with somebody else, talking, friendship, whatever, and you guys agree on everything, somebody is either lying or delusional. Okay? So... At some point in our lives, we're going to butt heads with other people. And we need to know as followers of Jesus, if we are called to be unified, if we are called to link arms with people, even if they're not wearing deodorant, okay, that we're called to approach this conflict healthily. And the Latin word for confrontation, it's pretty fascinating. It, it means together, bringing two people together, the first part of the word. And then there's something along the lines of two people facing each other. Some things say it's like foreheads, right? Like the words like forehead in Latin and like, like I understand like butting heads, like you hit foreheads, I guess. I don't know. But the main idea of confrontation is literally to face something, bring two people together to face something. That is what the apostle Paul is doing in this moment. And he says something fascinating to me. Even in the first century, they had a problem with this. He has to make sure to emphasize, and I opposed him to his face. The NKJV will say withstood, but I'll have a footnote that says opposed. And that word can be really rendered con confronted. But he says, I opposed him to his face. And the Apostle Paul is like the letter writer of letter writers, right? Like back in the day, they had more methods of communication apart from face-to-face. -face. And he, this is such a big deal to Paul. This is so significant to Paul that he's not going to write a letter to Peter, right? He's not going to have somebody else read it. He's going to say, no, no, I needed to confront him face-to-face. Now, there's different studies on this topic of nonverbal versus verbal communication. If you look it up online, a bunch of fake stuff says like 93% of communication is nonverbal. Okay? But in communication theory, um, that original idea was uh, invented and derived from a psychologist. And this psychologist found that in 1972, it was 93%. That from his studies of what he did, 93% of communication was nonverbal. 
So that left 7% of communication to be just words, and that's all they thought. But upon further research that he's done more and more, he's like 83 now. I think I have his name, Albert Meribian. Okay, it doesn't even matter. I just wanted to say it so I can prove I'm right. Okay, but Albert Meribian, he developed this concept further, and he actually broke down that there's a rule when it comes to communication. It's actually 73855 rule. It's the 73855 rule, okay? He developed that actually it's 7% words, so that didn't change. Most, um, the minor portion of communication is only 7% words. Then 38% of communication is tone, okay? So we all know tone, right? It's like, what do you want? Hey, what do you want? Welcome. Welcome, right? Like tone matters, right? Some of you are like, I, I don't know, what is this? And then 55%, so it's still a significant chunk, is actions and nonverbal communication. So it, most of communication is still nonverbal, so you can't really contest that. And I love that even Paul at this time understands this, that the best way to have confrontation and good conflict in our lives is to have it face-to-face, okay? So if 7% of communication is effective using only words... That means when you text, only 7% of what you mean is getting through, okay? Only 7% of what you're going to say over a text message will make sense to the other person, all right? You'll, you'll have 7% success, okay? I don't know about you, but I apply that number to any other area of my life. I am not going to be a part of that situation. If I get on a plane tomorrow and the pilot's like, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is American Airlines because this would totally happen on that airline. Um, we have about a 7% chance of landing the plane today once we take off. So uh, buckle up and enjoy your free Coca-Cola. Right? Like, if all of us were, like, sane people, I'd say, get me off this plane right now and get me over at Delta, God's airline. Okay? Um, not an ad. I am a Sky Miles member. But anyway, 7% is pretty bad. 7% is pretty unhealthy. 7% is pretty toxic. And so if we're looking to be unified, if we're looking to approach conflict in a healthy way, if somebody has trespassed against us, if somebody has sinned against us, the best approach is in person. In Matthew 18, Jesus outlines this. And he says, if you approach that person and they're still unwilling to hear your case, bring in somebody else. That for us, we, we may have undealt conflict in our lives with people that we need to face them. We need to come face to face with what's really between us. And sometimes we need to bring somebody else in. But we need to be honest. And we need to read the nonverbals. We need to be there in person if possible. And so Paul concludes this part with something interesting. He says, because he stood condemned. Now, this is fascinating to me. Um, it, it's kind of litigational, lawyer-esque language. And I have a lawyer joke ready. I'm sorry. Um, but, but Paul's using the kind of language that he's putting Peter on trial. And from the evidence he has concluded, Peter is guilty of the crime he is assessing. And so let's reread verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group or the Jews. And so when, when reading this passage, something important to understand is Peter, in context, is sitting with a certain group of people and ostracizing and making the minority of a different group of people. And so we can read this in our American privileged, we can rent buildings and worship in them context, but the early church didn't function this way. The early church would attend synagogue, most likely, 
But then afterwards, they would get together in little house churches, okay? So Paul talks about this with Priscilla and Aquila. They start a house church because the Roman government wasn't like, yes, Christians, here's a loan for $5,000 or 5,000 denarius, I don't know. And you go rent a building and get Chris Tomlin to go play, right? Like that wasn't the case in the early church, all right? Um, the case was that because the Christians were in a persecuted minority compared to the rest of the Roman population, they needed to gather in intimate settings. So if you're in a connect group, community group, friend group kind of situation, it'd be more like that vibe for church, okay? You'd get together. You'd most likely read a psalm together. You would break bread and do the Passover meal. You'd do communion together. Someone would bring like the bomb hummus, okay? Like it would be a good time, all right? And so what Paul is saying is this isn't like mean girls vibe. It's like one day Peter is sitting down at the table with all the Jews someone's not wearing pink and he's like you can't sit with us gentiles okay um great movie by the way all right sidetrack uh pastor did not say that but anyway that's not that's not what's going on okay we can kind of appropriate this setting and, and imagine that like all of a sudden afterwards you're not inviting people that's not the case most likely what is happening is that paul is explaining and to peter that peter what you've been doing is over time you have been pulling away more and more from the houses and the homes where there's a majority of Gentile Christians, and you've been meeting privately with other only Jewish Christians. And what's beginning to happen is other people are pulling in, and people are altogether not attending church, okay? So that'd be equivalent of a large church in the city, people gathering together, and not based on anything theological, not based on anything grounded, but people gathering together and saying, man, this certain group of people, because of their race, like, we're not going to attend that church anymore. Like, that's pretty serious. If someone is to tell you, like, hey, why'd you stop attending? It's like, oh, too many white people, right? It's like, oh, it's like, oh, okay, like, geez. It's like, you literally, just because, based on their skin color alone? It, this is the intensity of that. It's something that somebody cannot control, and it's just something that people have, and there's nothing they could do about it. This was what Peter was doing. He was being discriminatory against the church, and this happened over time. And what's fascinating about Peter is as he faces the same temptations we do as a human, the same idea applies to him as it applies to us. See, what Peter valued, he invited. And what you invite is what you value, okay? What you invite into your life physically with who you sit with, who you spend time with, who you pour into is what you value. And then metaphorically, proverbially, what, what we invite into our minds what we be allowed to have a say in our life is most likely what we value most at the deepest level of who we are. Peter struggled with something we all do. He, he struggled with the fear of people's opinions and his personal piety being polluted. See, see, Peter believed because these Gentile Christians are not practicing what these Jewish Christians are practicing, the Torah, circumcision, following all these laws and statutes, they're not worth being sat with. And that it wasn't until people started showing up with influence that Peter began to pull back and draw away from others. The dangerous temptation we can all face is to surround ourselves, specifically speaking to the Christian context, you can make this case maybe for a context of reaching the world and evangelism and, and sharing a meal with non-Christians, and that's beautiful. But that's not what this context is. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about from Christian to Christian, there's marginalization happening and discrimination happening. That from brother to sister, from brother to brother, people are looking at each other based on outward external appearances and judging one another, what Jesus warned against. 
And so this is less of a conversation of, of sitting with people in the world and, and evangelism through that method. That is true. But this is more of a conversation of how we find cohesive unity in the church. That the modern church, we get swayed and pulled by methods of the world where what people have to off, offer through their status or their significance of what they've attained, we begin to invite into our lives. That we may ignore other people walking into a service or at a connect group and never ask them about their life. But the moment someone has rumored to have 60K followers on Instagram minimum, it's like, oh, like, hey, God gave me a dream about you all of a sudden, right? It's like, oh, okay. It's like, oh, or this is the worst one. Some of you guys have faced this. It's like, God told me you're my spouse. It's like, oh, man, like, we got a lot to talk about. It's like, I am married, sir. What? Right? But this is what we do. We look at people and what they have to offer us and what immediately can gratify a situation we're experiencing, and we leverage what those people have to offer for our personal benefit. When the bigger picture of what Paul is presenting is more than that. This is what he continues to say. He doesn't let up on this. See, Paul says this doesn't only impact you, Peter. He says in verse 14, in verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. I love the way, I think it's the uh, ESV or the New King James renders that part. It says, and played the hypocrite. We'll talk about that. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. I'm always fascinated in public how people will join a line no matter, like, what is going on or if it's super busy, right? If you've ever been somewhere like Disneyland or just, like, a giant supermarket, there's these videos online of these, like, influencers just starting random lines and seeing if people join them, right? And, and they'll stand in line, and all of a sudden people are like, oh, what is going on over here? Yes, you must come here, right? Like, it's most, like, tourists in, like, major cities. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm not aware of this. Like, this looks big and popping and popular. And then people will stand in line for hours and not understand or know what they're standing in line for. Like, th this is our mentality and our natural inclination, okay? You're guilty of it. You change lanes, okay? Or you might be that person that changes the lane, like, at the last second. But if you're in traffic, right, and the lane's backed up, it's like, oh, I must have to turn right soon because there's construction, okay? Like, construction is just, like, the construction cone is, like, the flower of Albuquerque. That's all I have to say, okay? It takes, like, one construction cone and one sign to be like, yes, okay, we must get in the right lane. I got, yeah, it's right lane time. Like, I don't know what's going on. And someone could probably put a cone in the middle of the street, and you would just follow it. You would go outside the cone. Like, you wouldn't go in between. We're all sheep, okay? It's okay. But this is the human condition, and the truth is it takes only one person to start a line. It takes one person to start a line. And Peter, in this moment, started the line. He started the line of discrimination against other Christians based on factors they couldn't control. This is why Jesus, I believe, compares followers of Jesus and people in general to sheep, okay? If you watch videos of sheep, they're not the smartest animal, okay? Like they, they roll over and they can't roll back over and they die and they fall each other off cliffs and they get stuck, stuck in barbed wire and they have to be carried over puddles and all these things. And somebody's phone playing? Or maybe it's mine. But sheep are, are not something to be compared well to when it comes to being a human. But Jesus does this on purpose because this is our natural inclination. We as people, we want to follow what we believe is popular. And Paul uses this language. The NIV doesn't put it well, but other translations do. They played the hypocrite. And in Greek culture at that time, they didn't have, like, Steven Spielberg to go, like, make them Transformers 9 or whatever, or, like, whatever Marvel were on, okay? Um, they, they, all they had was masks. And so when it came to a live theater play, there was few actors, but there was many roles. And so what they would do is they would take a mask to pretend to be something they're not. And in Greek ideology and language, this was called playing the hypocrite, pretending to be something you're not for a short time. 
And Paul uses that language very cutting, and he, and he uses it very specifically because he understands that with their inconsistent behavior, they're pretending to be something they're not. These group of Christians who are following after an idea and the fear of people before the fear of God are rooted more in hypocrisy than the image of God. And this is what I have to say about hypocrisy. If you look at anybody in your life, if you look at your own life, and for me personally, anytime I've been a hypocrite, and yes, as a pastor who stands on stage with a mic, I say things, and then the next week I'm a jerk to people, and I'm like, what am I doing, okay? Like, everybody's a hypocrite. All right? It's just a matter of time till you or I are one of them. But hypocrisy, the root of hypocrisy at any point in our lives when we've acted contrary to how we know we should, I believe hypocrisy is grounded in a lack of identity. That we, when we construct our value and our purpose in temporary things, we become temporary people. So we become chameleons and we adjust and adapt to the situation as we see fit. And it really doesn't stem from wanting to be liked or people pleasing or any of these things. It really comes from a place of not really knowing who we are. That's why I believe that at the beginning of this night, over and over during worship, the Lord's just reminded me, I am who you, I am, you are who I say you are. You are who I say you are. That when we begin to act according to other people's convictions, and we begin to act according to other people's likes, when we begin to act according to what other people believe and think, it's temporary, and it's going to change. And tomorrow that person may not like you, and you're going to have to adapt to that, and that's exhausting. And for us as followers of Jesus in this space, maybe you feel in your life you have for a long time been pretending to be something you're not. Maybe you come every Sunday night and you put on a mask. Maybe tomorrow morning you're going to be a different person at work. And there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. The reality is, is it's a deeper issue within us to ask where am I deriving my significance and identity from? It has less to do with the external things and the people I'm trying to oppress. It has more to do with me. Because I can't control other people's actions, but I can control my own. And for us, as people who have committed to be unified, committed to be in community, it's truly not possible to withstand the long haul and the effort of community, of being amidst other flawed, messed up people, when we're playing the hypocrite. You're going to bounce from community to community. You're going to bounce from relationship to relationship, friend to friend, friend group to friend group, person to person, family to family, pretending to always adapt to what they are. And it stems from coming to understand what we know to be true of ourselves. And I love that Paul, he concludes with this in verse 14. He just zeroes in. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas or Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul is driving home at a phrase we're all familiar with. You're not practicing what you preach. And I want to say tonight, when it comes to hypocrisy, when it comes to what we know to be true and what we believe but not acting on it, something has to change. And something needs to change in the sense that we either need to start changing our preaching or we need to start, start changing our practice. We, we need to start changing the things we preach about because we're not practicing them. Or now we need to start putting into practice some things we're preaching. And this simple concept is what Paul is exactly saying to Peter and the rest of this group. And I love that Paul, he doesn't just say like the gospel. But he says the truth of the gospel. He's saying the heart of what we are doing you are betraying. 
And the gospel, all it is, is it means good news. Paul is saying the very heart, the essence of this good news brought to the world by the sacrifice of Jesus. You are polluting and perverting through your personal bias and discrimination. See, without the truth of the gospel, it just becomes news, right? Just news is, well, this system of belief made by this Jewish carpenter like 2,000 years ago, nobody really gets along in it. And everybody's kind of divided, and you kind of have to earn your way to heaven, and good luck with that, because life's really hard, and humans really flawed. It's like, that's just news. Like, yeah, that's like every day, bro, okay? No, no. Paul is saying the good news, and the truth of what this good news is. And the good news is this, is that God knowing all of us, inside and out, still desires to have something to do with us. If you just want to summarize what the gospel is, what the good news is, the God of the universe who created everything, right? He created milk. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) He knows us, like knows us, okay? Not like, oh, we've been dating for a year, we know each other. Like, he knows us. He knows us. He knows what we were doing last week. He knows what Nick was saying two days ago. He, he, He knows us. But he still chooses to love us and to want to call us friend? I think this needs to be emphasized for us tonight. God wants to be your friend, and he loves you. He loves you. Like, simple as that. God loves you, and he wants to know you and have a relationship with you. He's inviting us to take part in that, but it's up to us to accept the invitation. This is all the gospel is. This is all the good news is. This is the essence of Jesus's ministry, and the essence of who Jesus is we magnify and exemplify in our daily lives as followers of Jesus. The moment we stop doing that is the moment we're following a different gospel. The, the moment we, we stop emulating our life around, okay, how did Jesus operate? How, how, would, how would Jesus act in this kind of situation? How, how would Jesus treat people? I, I'm going to learn from him as my rabbi, as my teacher, as my God and my Savior. He's perfect. He did it well. I can't do it as well as he did, but I'm going to try. The moment we stop doing that, it just becomes personal piety, my friends. And the best depiction of this is in in the Gospels, Jesus is seen sitting at a table with flawed, messed up people like you and I. Tax collectors, pretty much thieves, people who are burglars, right? Prostitutes, sinners, ugly, hard, difficult people. And the religious people are frustrated about it. But Jesus says, I, I came for the sick. I didn't, I, I didn't show up for the healthy. I came for the sick. That this is the good news. And I want to conclude tonight with, with probably, and this is saying a lot, but my favorite Old Testament story. And this is the premise of why I tell tonight a seat at the table. Because in this story, we get a picture of what Jesus does for us. That knowing us, being able to get rid of us, have nothing to do with us. He still invites us into relationship with him. This story is out of 2 Samuel chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but you can. And the context of this is David, King David, just took over. Saul has died, and his son Jonathan have died. So there's no succession to the Israel throne. So David's next in line. And at that time in history, when you were next in line for the throne, and there was competition through different lineages, what you would do is you'd go out of your way, and you'd kill all the competition when it came to accessing the throne. So you see this in like medieval history, and this was a practice at this time. So if anyone else could have been possible for gaining the kingdom, for being the king, 
the potential king would kill those people. And who is left is a grandson of Saul by the name of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson and Jonathan's son. And so because Saul died and then Jonathan died, Mephibosheth is next in line. And instead of David having every opportunity to get rid of him, have nothing to do with him, David invites him to a seat at his table. Let me read this in verse 1. David asks, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. The king said to him, are you Ziba at your service? He replied. The king said, is there still no one alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered, king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both And he'll go on to say that his name is Mephibosheth. And then verse 9, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Will always eat. Eat at my table. My friends, Jesus invites us to a seat at his table. We're flawed. We have issues. We have frustrations. We have sin. He he invites us to a seat at his table. And a seat at his table, it just looks like being unified with him. Being able to be known completely for all you are and still loved. This is what it means to have a seat at the table with Jesus. And so for us as followers of him, if we're claiming that, if we're preaching that, the least we can do, the least we can do in our lives is emulate his heart posture and his character. That for other followers of Jesus... For others who we may not get along with, who we may disagree with, we don't like who they voted for, do we value them enough to invite them in? Or do we ostracize people based upon external things that are temporary? The least we can do following a person who allows us to have access to everything and loves us despite knowing everything is love those around us. So in conclusion, I want to pray that if there's any root in our lives, that there's any portion of our lives that we're not inviting people in, we're we're, we're not allowing others a seat at the table of our lives. If we're treating people a certain way because of conflict that's unresolved, that's on us to confront, that that stuff may be cast out. I want to pray that collective and the people that are a part of this ministry may be a people unified. That we come from different backgrounds, we look different, but we can come under the same banner and sit at the same table with Jesus. And I want to pray for those as well who, this gospel, this good news, the idea of a God who created everything, desiring to know us in relationship to him, that's foreign to you. I want to pray for you that you just begin, your mind and your perspective would begin to be opened up to this reality. Let me pray for us. Father, you love us so deeply. 
Lord, you, you love us despite knowing everything about us. You see us for all we are. We're 100% vulnerable before you. We can't run, we can't hide. Father, thank you that you still choose to love us, that you still choose to invite us to unity with you. That, Lord, we can ground our identity, we can ground who we are and the reality of your character and what you have to say about us because of that. Lord, thank you for the picture of Mephibosheth in the Old Testament. That despite his flaws and his threats and his sins potentially against David, David still invited him to relationship and intimacy. Lord, I pray over us as a ministry, we may emulate your heart. That as people who claim to follow you, who claim to be many versions of you, we may cut out ways that we're being divisive. We may cut out ways we're sowing dissension among friends, among churches, among others, among family members, that God convict our hearts right now. It's time to stop being the hypocrite. It's time to stop willfully and knowingly being somebody we're not. Father, I pray if there's any confusion over identity in this place, if there's any misgivings about what the world said and, and lies believed about who we're supposed to be, that those lies may be dispelled in your name, Jesus. That, Lord, we may walk in freedom tonight away from confusion and confused identities and towards you, Father. Lord, I pray over anybody in this space who doesn't know you, who, who, who the, the seat's pulled out, the table's set, the food's warm. Lord, the invitation's open, but, God, we're, they may not be accepting that seat. Lord, I pray over those that those reasons that they're not accepting the seat, the unity, the fellowship, the communion with you, that you may dispel those lies. That it may be because I've sinned too much, I've done too much. Disbelief, doubt, skepticism, all these things, Lord, dispel those things in your name, Jesus. And let us just take part in the invitation you offer us. Pray this in your name. Amen.